All right, I'm on a terrible, terrible mic, so I'm going to keep this very short. Uh, thank you so much for downloading the Green Majority Podcast. And the special announcement I wanted you to know is that today is the last day, well, technically tomorrow at noon will be the last chance to apply for the uh, uh, position. Uh, if you'd like to be a volunteer or if you'd like to learn more about the position, there is a post on today's show post. You can go to greenmajority.ca. Other than that, that's it. Check the website. I'm going to let you listen to the good audio quality now. Take care and thanks for downloading. Welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Sarah Kaster. I'm in studio with, you know, it's kind of boring at this point. Oh, Stefan. I know. Man, but, Stefan's always here. But this time there's friends. But you know what's exciting? I was going to say, <laughs> we have we have a, a non-boring person with us. Deirdre Libanata is, is joining us, a former volunteer. Welcome. Good morning. And uh, you'll be jumping in throughout. We'll be going to Deirdre and Stefan in a few minutes for some news. And also later on, we're going to find out what Deirdre has been up to. Uh, Deirdre was a volunteer. And then in the proud tradition of the Green Majority, uh, we get really excellent volunteers who then two months later find amazing job opportunities that we can't possibly blame them for taking and they disappear. Yeah. Uh, you're welcome. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, right. The whole point is you don't have to be sorry because it's cool. That's right. Uh, so uh, the uh, another highlight of the show is we have Christine Nielsen in the in the studio today. We're going to be talking about uh, CBC Nature of Things, a documentary that she was the uh, writer and director for. It is called Jumbo, the Life of an Elephant Superstar. And uh, this is a it's an old story, but even so, it happened well before my time. But I'm I was familiar with the the lore of, of Jumbo, but I didn't know quite so much about it as I do now, having watched the documentary. So Christine's going to uh, join us uh, in the middle part of the program to talk about uh, that amazing story and all the, the science caveats and the lore and, and some of the interesting stuff there. Uh, I will tease that the end of the documentary made me cry. And we'll explain that later. But at the end, the end's a bit of a tearjerker. Uh, so we'll do that. And then I believe at some point we're also talking about uh, Trump drilling and some and why it's so darn cold outside. That's a big mystery. Oh, yeah. Um, Stefan, perhaps this is where I can pass it to you. Totally. Yeah. So uh, I made a promise uh, when I began walking over here that when I arrived here, I would not complain about the cold. Mm. Uh, so I will only state a fact, which is that it is cold. <laughs> uh, that is not a complaint. It is a statement of, uh, of evidence. There's evidence I have it. Uh, it was the icicles on the end of my mustache. That is the that is the evidence I'm using for the fact that it is cold. And note, it is not a complaint about the cold. <laughs> it's just a statement. Um, and I, as I was joking right before the show, I feel like a version. Another we, we've been gone this theme of other titles or subtitles the show could have, uh, and. Different ways to talk about the weather, I think, is a pretty good one, given how often we're just sort of like, okay, we're talking about the weather, but how can we make this a little wider reaching? And this weather, although we're, we're lucky this time, it has a very enticing name. I think just that this is partially why meteorologists are so excited uh, about this one is because, you know, normally they get to talk about like, you know, like even something devastating like Hurricane Sandy, uh, it's, its name is Sandy. Like that's not the most terrifying name in the world. Uh, now, when you get something like the bomb cyclone, uh, which is just a ridiculous name, 
Uh, like my, I'm kind of intrigued about whether or not as climate change gets worse, we're going to get more and more ridiculous names. Like the, 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 and also, I also want to point out there's a very weird, um, there's a very weird, uh, I feel like correlation between the colder weather events have more terrifying names than warmer weather events. Remember a couple of years ago, they had other insane name for like, for a cold snap. Uh, but bomb cyclone is a real thing. Uh, so I'm going to quickly talk about that and then tie that actually into uh, a larger conversation about about insurance, really. Uh, so I'm going to try to make insurance entertaining by talking about the word, saying the word bomb as many times as possible and the word cyclone as many times as possible. Both fun words to say. Uh, so first off, uh, why on earth is it called a bomb cyclone is a reasonable question one can ask. And... And the short answer is that it is. It has to do with a. Uh, they only. They only rel, rel, it's a relatively recent addition, actually, to the lexicon, um, and it is. It is specifically around a. Uh, it refers to a phenomenon expected to occur uh, at this weather event unfold. So it's uh, first of all, they're sort of naming bomb cyclone as a thing they expect to happen, not a thing that is currently happening, uh, in part because it's sort of a specific experience. And the official term is, uh, wow, the official term is even more amazing than bomb cyclone. It is explosive cyclogenesis. Uh, or genesis, cyclogenesis, explosive psychogenesis is the actual name, or bombogenesis, which is the funniest of the three. Um, but what is actually happening is not so funny. Uh, it is when, so the bombing, quote-unquote, occurs when a low-pressure system's central pressure falls 24 millibars in 24 hours or less. Um, so basically, that is that there's a there's a there's a there's a very deep and low pressure system is what happens. It's a very fast at creating low pressure system, and what is that? What's that bringing to the northeast is something that sort of feels similar, seems similar to a hurricane, uh, but also it's freezing and there's snow. Uh, so really, just imagine the real life version of the day after tomorrow, uh, but like also scaled back to like you know slightly less ridiculous and somewhat of what. Uh, uh, of, 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 of what the type of experience is. It's very cold. It's very snowy. Um, and what's, what's concerning uh, outside of the fact that this is obviously very cold and the, that's, you know, the Northeast and even actually parts of it, it's, it's, it's hitting the entire East coast. Uh, and, but what's more concerning than just sort of the, its specific existence is the fact that it is part of a much larger pattern for 2017 and part of a much larger pattern that we're seeing over time within the, 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 the world. Um, because 2017 uh, set a set a record lo- set a record for the lo- for losses from natural disasters uh, in for insurers specifically uh, well actually for both insurers and also the world uh, the, the, it was the second the closest the closest it came to previously was a was uh, the year after Fukushima um, but that was sort of one specific. Uh, that was sort of that, that was sort of a specific instance versus sort of the world's natural disasters that were sort of hitting it instead, um, and so insurers are set to pay out 135 billion dollars uh, to cover losses from natural disasters in 2017. That's billion with a B. That's a billion with a B, uh, and this is from one of the, the world's largest reinsurer. And so, for, if this is like this is a callback to like a year and a half ago on this show, so I will 100% expect no one to remember this. Uh, but there was a very about a year and a half ago, we had uh, one of our one of our favorite guests, Tim Nash, on the show, and he was talking about organizations and specifically he was talking about he was talking about green investments and one organi- and types of organizations that were sort of more likely to be considered green investments. And one of the things he highlighted was this sort of concept of of of, of reinsurers, which are insurance companies for insurance companies. 
that's the that's the that's the that's the that's, the, that's this idea is that they provide insurance for the insurance companies, and so if they lose too much money, uh, then they have, they they can get some of that back as well. And and his point was that reinsurers are very interested in climate change. Because if there's anyone's business model that goes down, uh, if it, as climate change gets worse, it's the people who are responsible for the people who are responsible when things get destroyed. Um, and so, and so, and so, and so, this is sort of an ongoing trend of these sort of these larger reinsurers paying a lot of attention and then sounding the alarm as these things happen. Because this is a direct, because really, climate change as general makes the world more chaotic. That's sort of the, that's the. That's the, what actually happens versus the Trump idea of what happens, which is it gets only warmer. What's actually happening is we're going to see more general chaos, um, and and so which obviously is very bad for insurance, uh, and then even worse for the people who are responsible for the people who are given insurance. And, and so, I think, can we pause on that for a second? Because I think that's an interesting concept. The so the idea, like, so for, let's let's think about it as if we're insurance companies for a minute, right? So if we're insuring people, let's say the only thing to insure against is is fire. Uh, and so you have an insurance company, you have clients and you, you, you do risk assessment on what is the likelihood of fire at a particular neighborhood or overall. And you put all those variables in and you come up with a likelihood and you do your cost benefit analysis and blah, blah, blah. And you do all that math. You hire a bunch of good accountants and they come up with some ratios and blah, 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 blah. That's how insurance works. Right. And so we, we are fairly confident that we can predict X amount of fire. So as long as we have X amount of clients that are going to give us X amount of money, we can afford to pay out this amount. Like it's all very predicted. It's not, it's, there's no amount of casino happening in an insurance company. <laughs> Nothing happens by accident in insurance, right? Every variable is calculated. And so, but those are regular things. Those are things for which, okay, well, we can't say if Susan's house is going to catch on fire at a particular day or ever, but we can say that within a million people, it's frequency, right? This is, uh, most people should have taken this in first year university, right? It's sort of general st stats and you're looking at frequencies. And so that, that can all be controlled, right? And that's sort of how insurance works. But when you have a larger system above that system that throws, okay, but what if we can't count on any of those numbers? And we, we, and we have some predictability about what that is. Well, you can't really very well, it's not even just a matter of the fact that, oh, now, now the numbers are, are, scare, are changed and so now insurance companies need insurers. It's that you kind of can't implement that system, right? Because if you put that in, that throws your entire, all the math on everything. And so you kind of have to account for it separately. You have to say, okay, here's the norm. And then how is that norm going to adjust? And so I think it's not just like, it's not just that there's climate change or that they're responding to that. Like the whole way that like, that's why that's such a good barometer because their entire business is the risk assessment. And if the risk assessment, people can't make a risk assessment, assessment that's the problem right Dear I God. have a feeling that um, that insurance companies will start using climate models for um, for the way they insure people if they aren't already because um, that way they can they can change their model based on the region based on what they expect of the region they can charge people more just because they're living on the coast or in an arid area or uh, extremely at well, risk area yeah and and that's actually the bigger concern here uh, as we enter a world where this is more consistent uh, is that insurance companies to start withdrawing from certain places, mm -hmm. you know, there's or certain markets or certain markets. Yeah. Right. And, 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 and as we, as we get closer to that and as that happens, it's already happening. For example, a, a very large subset of the houses that were flooded in, in, um, uh, in, in Houston or in and around Houston mm -hmm. were not, were on a floodplain and so did not have flooding insurance. Uh, and so when we see, you know, it costs insurers $35 billion or $350 billion, um, that 
is still only a microcosm of the actual damage that has occurred because it doesn't anything that they've not insured and insurance companies are increasingly withdrawing from the places where things they know things are going to happen so it's harder and harder for you know Californians Californians to get fire insurance it's harder and harder for Houston floodplains or impossible for Houston floodplains to get to get flood insurance and what that means is that more and more commonly if we keep building in those places, which unfortunately the most climate at risk places are some of the most densely populated places mm-hmm. in the world, uh, they are going to, you're going to see the, what you're going to start seeing is, is, is a, is a stronger and stronger stratification of between those who can afford to live in the places which can't get insurance and those who can afford who can't. Uh, and and that is going to ch- fundamentally change how these places work because there's going to be a whole bunch of people who aren't able to act aren't, aren't, are not able to accrue capital because they can't buy the houses they can't afford the houses that are safe and the houses that aren't safe aren't safe and at some point will be destroyed and then they'll and then you're looking at basically the money going having to come from the government and the government cannot afford to be the sort of end-all insurer of all other things because they're not getting paid for this. And the, there's the personal equity like, you know, uh, the uh, you know another reason why p- uh, poor lower income people are going to be more affected. That's so that's mm. what sort of it, in a way that's sort of what you're talking about. Yeah. So there's sort of the, there's the cost going up, right? So insurance being $100 a month instead of $10 a month. That's like and the equity of that and the social justice and, and the, that's sort of one set of issues. There's a completely other set of issues as well, which is the, you know, the reason why there's not more nuclear energy plants in the U.S. is not because nobody wanted to build one. It's because after Three Mile Island, no one would insure them. Yeah. Right. So if if it's not a matter of well, now it's more expensive to insure car factories, it's now just we just won't insure them. Yeah. Now you don't have car factories. So like, and that's not a thing where like the government can't do anything. The government's not going to get a get into insurance to provide insurance for an industry that that people who are in the business of insurance won't provide them. I mean, they can, but that's like you're not going to be in office very long after you bankrupt the government. So like, what happens when entire types of things that we want to do just can't be done because no one will insure it? Well, it, well exactly. Or alternatively, that you're just you're just allowing the substandard existence to keep going. Like you know, it, this is what happens when you do poor planning. This is what happened. Like you know, this is the you know the, the city of Houston knew forever that they were at risk of a hurricane. They, you know, when, they got, when they got almost got, when they got hit slightly 10, 15 years ago, there was a whole study that came out about how at risk they were. And in some ways, they got lucky with Hurricane Harvey. Obviously, the people who were affected did not get lucky, but the city itself was actually at much more risk and had they got hit a little more directly, this would be, a, you know, instead of being costing $85 billion, you'd be looking at, you'd be looking at the hundreds. And, and, that's, and that's because these cities are not investing or not taking into account the, the, the like what's what's kind of what what has to be highlighted here is that the system only works if everyone is existing in the in a shared world like the if the insurers are living in a world where climate change exists but city councilors are not then then the insurers are going to leave um, and and that is going and then that is going to cause brand new problems for the for the city councilors who have to figure who are now solving multiple problems of now they have a housing crisis and they have a and they have an insurance crisis and they still haven't actually used the money that they got from the developers to build the houses in the first place to protect the houses that they are currently building on floodplains and so it's like what we're seeing right now is a disconnect between how policy is advancing, uh, how business is reacting to the impacts of climate change, and the actual science and difficulties that these sort of extreme weather events create. And all three of these sort of things are are, are now fighting each other um, and, and causing this sort of Again, what what is creating is, these, is situations that no one knows what to do, and no one knows who uh, who's responsible, and no one knows how to fix it. 
Uh, and and despite the fact that there are, there are ideas out there, the fact that none of the people we don't have that clarity allows people who are you know who are the people who are you know who had their houses flooded out in Houston, um, who are all the, all those people. It allows all of the, these people to to get forgotten, uh, and and that is that is the that is the world we're headed to unless we start understanding that like three major hurricanes and a bomb cyclone in one year is no longer going to be a surprise. Uh, it should be what we plan for. Uh, sorry, I, I almost forgot, and I forgot to warn you, but uh, one of our longest-running listeners, uh, Phil, who we've talked about, who emailed me to correct me that I was wrong about where he lived, by the way. Ah. But one of our long, one of the longest listeners that contacts me anyway, if there's someone longer, well, then you better email mm-hmm. so I know you exist. Uh, but he, funnily enough, the, he sent me an article this week suggesting we talk about it, and it's, uh, it's a year-in-review article posted on Grist. Uh, and it's talking about uh, Trump tweets overshadowing these major climate stories of 2017. But it was just as a way of making the point. It just sort of lists all the crazy and uh, extreme events that have happened this year and then sort of times out to some degree like when Trump was tweeting and how like if it wasn't for Trump's Twitter <laughs> habit that 2017 would be go down in history and may in the future but isn't currently mm-hmm. as like this catastrophic uh, climate event. But because of that, nobody's talking about it. And that like almost single handedly uh, he's controlled the narrative away from other things even that he's not talking about or has any interest in yeah well yeah and it, when it's it's difficult not to talk about nuclear war when uh, right. someone, you know like and it, you can understand why but it but that's a good point the amount of which you know the which the stories interestingly still managed to permeate because they were so huge but you know yeah if this was a year in which the president was boring uh, I think you would have seen a much longer and perhaps more helpful discussion to be had about the true devastation of, of all the different things and to, to, to not sort of gloss over what the, has happened in the rest of the world because I think this is also important to quickly note which is that the, the, it, the United States and, and developed nations are, are overly insured uh, not overly, like are, are insured more than the rest of the world. And they're not overly insured, but they're insured more than the rest of the world. And so what the, that also means that as these, as these things happen, there's a whole bunch of places that are getting, you know, that, that the numbers may be lower, but that doesn't mean the devastation was not as important. Um, but you know, it's not, it, it's, I can't t- come out here and tell you $350 billion. I can't say uh, I, I, like the destruction that was created to these people just because it didn't cost insurance money doesn't mean that doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and also the types of destruction also gets get, can get hidden. So in Europe, unusually low temperatures in April cost billions of dollars in damage to farmers because they shrunk harvests by 50%. And in that conversation, like I didn't know that until I read that t- today. <laughs> you know, that was a sto- and yet that's that's a huge it's like that's a huge news story because if there's anything that's sort of that has not yet fully started taking hold um, within within climate change conversations, it is that climate change is also going to start reducing yields uh, of, of food production and food's going to start costing more. And so we've sort of we've sort of seen the extreme weather parts of that. We have not yet sort of started seeing the the, the true impacts on people's sort of wallets from what you know the destruction of, of, of fruit crops and, and everything like that. And so all of these things are are happening and. And it's really just the world we live in now. And, and, and what's interesting about this is that I don't, I don't know yet know um, what that means. I think, I think the one thing it does mean is that we, the faster that the, uh, the cities uh, and the planning people start realizing all of the implications, start, start thinking 10, 15, 20 years ahead. There are very few people out there who are thinking far enough ahead about what this actually, what, what 
the city destruction and the way that cities will have to be rebuilt in different ways means. Um, you know, if you're a major city and you're not trying to build a ton of housing very quickly to ex to in places that are that are safer to to protect the housing market that will occur as your some of your some of your housing areas become less and less insurable. Um, then you are you're wait you're just you're just you're just ignoring things until until the until the cri crisis arrives. Um, on that note, I was uh, I was in Baja a few years ago, um, and and there's a whole community of these incredibly expensive houses on the cliffs of Baja, right beside the ocean, and these people have enough money right now um, that they are constantly moving their properties backwards. <laughs> And or filling in the um, the foreground, I guess, uh, with sand by importing sand. But um, that I mean, it it relates to both of your points actually, because only a certain percentage of the world is going to be able to afford that, and they're not going to be able to afford that for very much longer. And eventually, the whole cliffside is going to erode, and everyone's going to be looking for for new homes, and um, they're going to push people out, and the gap between the rich and the poor is going to go larger and um, it ties into so many issues and and oh I have another point on the Trump Trump thing um, and I think I think that um, perhaps the Trump tweets are kind of a way for people to escape um, the news that's coming from all over the world increasingly now because um, as you say there's so much happening in the world now that um, Trump might be, it might not just be um, Trump himself. It might be that people are looking for a uh, kind of a scapegoat or a reason, or a reason not to pay attention to these uh, larger issues. Maybe what I occasionally call the Mr. Burns effect, which is you're a terrifying person, but you're also so cartoonish that I kind of <laughs> yeah. can't take you seriously. Yeah, I am. I am waiting for Trump to try to you know attack solar by blocking out the sun. Right, that's what I'm waiting. <laughs> giant shield. Uh, right. I think that I think this is a great uh, great time to uh, to move to our, our music break. Aside from uh, another proposed subtitle for the show, Stephanie, you ready? Yes. It's not great, but it can always be worse. <laughs> um, so Megan is our tech this week. Megan, uh, what music? Uh, enjoyment have you brought for us today? So for our first music break, we have Cuff the Day. All right, we're back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, your wonderful radio uh, uh, host in Toronto, a community radio in Toronto, or possibly on one of our wonderful and very appreciated community partners uh, across Canada and internationally as well. And our international podcast audience, uh, hello to everyone. Uh, you are now going to be treated to an interview. We have, uh, haven't done interviews for a while. We were taking a bit of a, a, a laid back attitude uh, over the holidays. We're back in action. And uh, uh, my friend, uh, David McKenna, who works uh, with the CBC, has once again brought us a wonderful documentary uh, interview. So I have the writer-director, uh, Christine Nielsen, uh, with me in the studio today. Thank you very much for joining us. Hello. Thank you for inviting me. And uh, we're going to be talking about uh, your film, Jumbo, The Life of an Elephant Superstar. And uh, as we were chatting briefly before we went on air, I mentioned to you that uh, uh, this was something I, I knew of Jumbo, but, uh, but it was a little bit before my time. So it was more one of those things that I knew. Uh, I'd heard sort of... I 
I, I'm not even sure, honestly, where I where I knew of it, but it, it's such a such a lore that I knew that this famous elephant existed and that there's something to do with P.T. Barnum or whatnot. But anyway, so I this morning as I, I I do, I got a copy of the the documentary ahead of time, and I and I watched it, and I now know a whole bunch about Jumbo the elephant. Um, but there's a there's a number of reasons to talk about it, and I thought um, the the one I wanted to start on was mostly uh, the one that I think that has the most sort of direct environment relation, uh, which is just the animals themselves. So I was wondering if you could just start by telling us a little bit about uh, Jumbo and a little bit about just sort of elephants and, and why is this an important story from that angle? Absolutely. Well, Jumbo, for those who, who don't know who he was, he was by far the most famous uh, animal of his time. In fact, I think it can be argued that he still to this day uh, is the most famous animal that, that ever lived. He was a true celebrity. He was the first real kind of animal superstar. So, I mean, that's anyone who's heard about Jumbo, that's the part that they'll kind of know. What people don't know is how Jumbo lived, what really happened behind the scenes. And what we really explored in this documentary is what, uh, what could we learn from Jumbo that, that can help us today. Uh, we got unprecedented access to his skeleton. Jumbo died almost 150 years ago, tragically. Um, he was hit by a train uh, in St. Thomas, Ontario, after a circus performance. And ever since then, his bones have been stored at the American Museum of Natural History in New York. But for decades, they've been locked away. They haven't even been on display. This amazing creature is, has just sort of been locked away in storage. So the way we got involved was David Attenborough, Sir David Attenborough, uh, who, as we all know, conservation is, is his thing. He has had a fascination with Jumbo ever since he was a boy. And he really wanted access to the bones. He, wa he wanted to find out more. So mainly because it was David Attenborough. Um, How do you say know, no to David Attenborough? You can't say no to that's David the, Attenborough. That's the, <laughs> Just ask. Who would? Yeah. Why would you? If, if he walked up to me on the street and said, hi, I'm David Attenborough. Uh, I would nice say to yes. meet you. Can I have your car? It would be like, yeah, okay, whatever. Exactly. I met David Attenborough. Yes. Sorry, continue. No, I was, I, no your, your, your point is well taken. I think if, if most of us approached the American Museum of Natural History and said, Yes, we would like to take Dumbo's bones out of storage and we would like to drill tiny little holes in a few of them so we can do some DNA and isotope analysis. They would say, yeah, uh, bye. Yeah. <laughs> but because of David's interest and because of his reputation as someone who truly cares about wildlife, um, over time we did get access to Jumbo's bones and it was, uh, it was absolutely remarkable. And so the, I think the really important uh, part of the story there was that I think the, many people will be familiar with, if they're familiar at all with the story of Jumbo, they'll be familiar with the time as the celebrity uh, with P.T. Barnum and the circus um, and being traveling around, was it New York City, I think, where uh, it was originally uh, brought in uh, off the boat. But the, the film starts uh, much earlier in Jumbo's life with the, the trainer who's, I apologize, the name is uh, blanking uh, uh, me, but the, uh, that just the relationship in London. And, uh, his keeper, are you mean Keep, his, keeper, keeper, yes. his keeper, Matthew Scott? Yes, this, the, that is actually an extraordinary part of the story. So, so 
Before Jumbo came to America as a circus elephant, he spent almost two decades in London Zoo in England where, I mean, you have to sort of put yourself in the 1860s. Uh, any kind of animal from Africa or Asia was incredibly exotic and particularly an African elephant, which most people had never seen. So Jumbo became an instant celebrity in that zoo. And there, there are a lot of parts of that that clearly are very sad, but but the heartwarming part of that story is his relationship with with Matthew Scott, his keeper. Matthew Scott was an odd duck. Uh, he didn't like humans. Humans didn't like him very much, but he loved animals, and he particularly loved Jumbo. And there's a lot of talk, some of it I think substantiated, that they actually did have a secret language, and they actually could kind of communicate you know, between themselves to the exclusion of those around them. Like they kind of had a plan, people think, when Jumbo was about to be shipped to America, Jumbo wouldn't get in his crate. And a lot of people think that he didn't get into his crate until Matthew Scott knew that he could go with Jumbo to America and then Matthew gave him some kind of a secret signal, which... You know, if you haven't studied elephants, you think, yeah, right, yeah, that's a bit anthropomorphic. But uh, when our team visited the David Sheldrick Wildlife Trust, which rescues orphaned elephants uh, outside Nairobi, Kenya, they said, absolutely. And they showed us elephants understand pointing. You, you, it's like elephants and dogs are the two mammals that we know understand pointing. So if you say over there, they go over there. And it's remarkable to watch a whole herd of baby elephants go, oh, okay, we're going over there. <laughs> so there is, I think, uh, there's some credence to that secret communication. Between they seem, they seem more responsive than human children. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and, and some would say cuter. Right? You know, the child would, it might understand you, but they're not going to do it. You know? <laughs> yes, that's right. Um, I don't know if, if you saw the documentary all the way through, you would have seen baby elephants in a yes. mud bath. Oh, the very adorable. <laughs> oh my god! It's, yeah, it's it's beyond adorable. <laughs> I know what I'm doing today. Yeah. <laughs> and you will find you will find out when you can and watch it later on. Yeah. <laughs> so I, yeah, that was a very interesting part of it, and I think that's what sets up the the end as well. Was that you know I'm not particularly an animal, animal person. I'm not an anti animal person, but I I didn't grow up with pets or anything like that. And I'm sort of generally like you know we shouldn't kill stuff, but it's not you know animal uh, protection, animal rights is not sort of my main thing uh, and so something even less sort of uh, domesticated and less anthropomorphized seems like it would be less identifiable but there's just something about the elephant's eyes that just and and how how obviously intelligent they are mm -hmm. that immediately I think you have to be not paying attention or sociopath to not feel some type of connection with them immediately and so when we're when they're talking about all that you know the bad treatment not necessarily mistreatment but bad treatment improper treatment uh that was given for them it sort of it makes you just watching the film i was sort of like how could they not know right i know it, it but, is it's it, it is hard to imagine how little people actually knew only 150 years ago and even though there was you know there were a lot of sad things about this film dumbo didn't live necessarily particularly well he certainly didn't die well but what I took away from making this film is we actually have learned a lot. I mean, there's still terrible things happening to elephants, the ivory trade and, you know, animal endangerment in, in the wild in general is, is 
pretty depressing if you think about it. But I came away from this, and, and I have a tendency to feel depressed about those things. But I came away from making this film feeling like, oh, sometimes humanity does progress. Sometimes we do learn things. And, and talking to all these various elephant scientists, um, it blew me away learning some of the things that they are just now starting to understand about elephants, like elephant PTSD, believe it or not. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's where that emotionality comes in. And a lot of what they were talking about when they were looking at the, the sanctuary in Kenya, in Nairobi, um, was the, the relationship between the caregivers for the traumatized elephants who in many cases had their parents killed in front of them is that even the, even the idea that the baby would like has enough cognizance, uh, to be affected by that or, or, or even know anything outside of some really basic instinct. But no, they grieve. And if they're not properly cared for, they're, they're wrecked in the same way that if we took a human and killed his parents in front of it and then gave it no care and pushed out the door, it would be a pretty messed up kid. And that's exactly what we see with these elephants. Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's these very critical stages when an orphan elephant is brought to the Sheldrick Wildlife, Wildlife Trust. We feature one, a young male uh, called Mosiera, who, who comes to the Sheldrick Wildlife, Wildlife Trust at about the same age that Jumbo was captured. His mother was killed and he was captured to be sent to the zoo. So by watching Musiera and the stages of healing he has to go through at the David Sheldrick Wildlife Trust, you really witness um, the complexity of, of these creatures and, and yeah, emotionality. I mean, it's the, that's a word that one has to be very careful with because scientists, even though we know that there are things now like animal PTSD, one has to be very careful not to attribute more emotion to them than we can scientifically prove, which was kind of a challenge in this documentary because I really fell in love with Jumbo. <laughs> mm -hmm. Which is why I think, uh, and that's, that, that's of course, you know, the, the, the last thing they discovered they, in the film, we, we haven't talked too much about it, but it's a, a, but a big portion of the film, of course, or, or at least in, in the final product of the film, the sort of purpose, if you will, is to, is to find out what really happened because of there, of course, are conspiracy theories about what really happened. And, and the film addresses some of that. I don't want to ruin too much of the film. So we'll, let's leave, we'll leave all of that. But I, but that was sort of part of the story. But the other part of the story was, of course, getting to know Jumbo. And so when you get to the the tragic end, both metaphorically and literally, of the film, um, it was really quite heart-wrenching to, to see the photo of – or the, the images of, of Jumbo sitting there. And they talk about the the keeper, whose name I'm blanking on. Matthew right Scott. Shot, Matthew Scott. Um, you know, they, they describe it as, as him having – as witnesses having described him weeping like a baby. And But after having seen the rest of the film, I would I, – I sort of – I rebuffed it my 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 phone screen. It's like that's not right. No, he's he, uh, it, taking everything into account. My reaction was no. He was weeping like he lost a partner, mm -hmm. not necessarily a romantic one, mm -hmm. but obviously some type of deep emotional life partner. You know, wasn't into humans. Was into animals. They obviously had a connection. That seemed more appropriate to me to describe it that way. And I think I wish I'd talked to you a few months ago when I was writing the script, <laughs> <laughs> because that is actually far more apt. Yeah. Yeah. That is, he did. He did lose his partner. Jumbo was his best friend, um, mm. and I think it's fair to say that Matthew Scott was Jumbo's best friend. Yeah. 
Well, as I said, I don't want to. I don't want to give the whole film uh, away, and we've left some some intentional little pockets uh, there for people to discover. Uh, maybe it's time we should uh, let people know how they can view this for themselves. Right. Well, they can watch it uh, on the Nature of Things on the CBC on Sunday night at eight p.m. Eastern, or uh, you can actually access it online starting at three p.m. Eastern this afternoon. And so, just because of our, our time shifted audiences here, that's uh, uh, for people in Toronto. But that would be January the 7th for folks that might be hearing this tomorrow uh, or later. Uh, it'll be on Sunday. And then uh, today is the 5th. So if you're listening to this live or you download the podcast right away, it, it might be already available. Uh, so we'll have the links. I'm going to get the links for all that stuff. And that will be up uh, on the on the show post and all that. Uh, thank you again uh, for your time, uh, Christine uh, Nielsen. And uh, it was a pleasure to watch the film. Uh, um, I'd like to, we have a minute left. I, I was wondering if you would, uh, if you had any uh, amazing tales or things that happened or things you learned that didn't make it into the film that you, you just one nugget or anything that you could share with us. Yeah, I think for me, I mean, there were a lot of memorable moment, moments on making this film. But for me, the, the most memorable uh, was when we were standing in that room, there was the curators, there were the scientists, and there was the film crew and me. And we were standing there kind of waiting as Jumbo's bones are, are being unwrapped and his skeleton mm -hmm. is being rolled out and his 150 kilogram skull is being lifted onto a table. And, you know, we're normally a pretty chatty bunch and blah, blah, blah. And suddenly the whole room just went silent. And it wasn't just, it was partly because these bones are the biggest thing most of us have ever seen in, in a skeleton. But it was also just this, it was like just this feeling of reverence for Jumbo and also excitement that maybe we would get to solve some of these mysteries that have been swirling for 130, 40 years. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Christine. I hope we'll see you again for another film. And uh, that's all the time we have for this break, though. We're going to go to a music break, and then Stefan and Deirdre are going to jump back in. We're going to talk about some more news. Uh, I don't even know what he's going to talk about. It's a mystery to me, too. We'll find out together. We'll find out together. <laughs> the best way to find out. Thank you again, Christine. Thank and, you. Uh, uh, now back to Megan for our second and final music break. And welcome. We are back. You're listening to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM. I'm your host, Aaron Kaster, in studio with Stefan Hostetter and Deirdre Limonada, uh, who are joining us. And uh, they're going to talk about some stuff, and I'm just going to probably interject sarcastic comments. Go. Great. All right. <laughs> uh, yeah, so as we as we teased, uh, Deirdre left for a uh, an exciting adventure. Um, and in his, in his back, and is headed back actually quite, quite again soon. And I've, we've talked about it at least once before when you were here last time. Uh, but could you give uh, just a brief overview uh, to the, the new version of our audience who are listening today uh, what you have been up to? Yeah, so uh, I've spent the past year and a half of uh, my life out on Canada's west coast in one of the last coastal temperate rainforests uh, in the world. Um, Doing, we're doing a natural history documentary that is coming to an IMAX theater near you in February 2019. Shameless plug. <laughs> <laughs> a, a year and uh, so put that in your calendars, everyone. Uh, <laughs> a year and one month of notice. You can you cannot say you were not warned. <laughs> Save the date. Yes, all of February 2019. <laughs> it's gonna be. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Block so, off your February. Save yeah. the month. Yeah, the whole month. <laughs> Um, yes. Yeah, so, so what and what makes the so is, is it obviously a big sort of the, it's a nature documentary or sort of your you spent a incredible amount of time on a boat if if I'm not if I'm correct. <laughs> yeah, that seems to be the thing that stands out most uh, when I tell people about the film. Um, the majority of our filming was done off uh, 
a boat in what what has become known as Canada's Great Bear Rainforest um, on the central coast of British Columbia. Um, we had between one and two crews out at a time, um, focusing on documenting the seasons and um, the seasonal changes in the ecosystem up there, which is uh, a huge archipelago um, of islands surrounded by the Pacific Ocean. Um, and it hosts an incredible, um, incredibly diverse system of um, life, both underwater and above water. And I'm really, we're all, we're all really, really excited. Um, the director uh, is Ian McAllister of the nonprofit uh, Pacific Wild, and um, this has kind of been his dream for the past uh, 20 plus years. Um, we found a document actually. Uh, from uh, meeting notes approximately 20 years ago uh, that says IMAX project, question mark. And, um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> and it really uh, drove things home for us. So this has been a long time coming for him. And uh, I'm just really excited to have been a part of it and to have seen the things that we've seen because I've never seen so much life in in Canada, that's for sure. Yeah, and I think that's the part that always that interested me. Um, not that the whole thing did not interest me, but one of the things that interested me is that, you know, I am, despite the fact that I am, I, I co-host a radio show about the environment, uh, I'm still very much uh, centered in the city. Uh, and, and much of my understanding of the world is still centered within the city, in this concrete jungle, which has dramatically less uh, wildlife than real jungles. Well, uh, well again, okay, fine. You can, everyone can send me the link to the Planet Earth documentary <laughs> proving that I'm wrong and that there's all these animals around us, and that's lovely. Point is, uh, it's still not the same as nature. Perception is everything. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, and I'll, I'll, accept, I'll accept all that. That's fine. Um, but, uh, but there is a difference of being in sort of uh, in, 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 in wild nature, I guess, wilderness. Is, I guess is the is maybe a more acceptable term, uh, and so I'm wondering if you can sort of give us a a, a, a taste of of some of the things that you saw. What was the what was the one thing that sort of you'll remember uh, from the shooting that you, that you sort of get to see in this documentary? Um, there are so many things this past year that have just completely blown my mind. Um, uh, I've been on estuaries just full of grizzly bears, like I've. I'd never seen a grizzly bear before last year, and um, uh, last year I was surrounded by um, by like 20, 20 grizzly bears. There were three families. There was a mother, two cubs, another mother and two cubs, a mother and three cubs, and a few single um, grizzlies that um, we shared an estuary with for uh, a long time, courtesy of the Kittisu, uh First Nations up there. Uh, the First Nations culture is a huge part of the wilderness culture out on the West Coast, and that is also going to be a huge part of the film um, that we're hoping to do really well in the story. And um, other things uh, include the incredible, incredible underwater life um, that you wouldn't think um, when you when you when you think of temperate temperate waters. Um, and um, coastal wolves that feed on fish in salmon season, um, seals, sea lions, humpback whales, uh, porpoises, dolphins. Um, there's just it's actually it's it's overwhelming um, the life that's out there, and it's it's crazy that 
most of the people who live in this country and most of the people who live in BC have never have never seen that part of the country. Um, so we're really, really excited to bring it to the rest of the country. Yeah, and that's I think that's one of the things that um, is so valuable about these kind of like you know these nature documentaries um, is just to remind people what it looked like before. <laughs> you know, like yeah. it's it, I feel like you know especially given given how. How, how many of us live in cities and how many of us sort of, or, or, or even suburbs or, you know, even exurbs, you know, like, until you get to truly rural places, you're not experiencing this level of, um, this level of, of wild. Uh, but, but it's such a, I think it's such a powerful, um, way to convey people that there, there, it's not, I don't think you realize how few wildlife we see until you see how much wildlife is out there in places that are untouched by us. I think you get a better sense of the of the devastation that we are creating when you understand what places looked like before we were there. Uh, and of course, the, I'm not, this is not me saying the Great Bear Rainforest is not in many ways already tainted by, by humanity, mm -hmm. but even an already tainted place still is such teeming with life. Yeah, and it's, it's remained... Um, a very uniquely pristine place in Canada and especially on the BC coast uh, with all the industry that's kind of making their way in increasingly so um, on that side of the, the country. Um, we, yeah, it's, it's just absolutely mind-blowing and it definitely sets a standard for um, what has been and what could be um, in terms of wilderness areas in, in Canada and in North America and the world. Yeah. The, so the, uh, the pivot I'm going to make is, is a sharp one. Uh, so before I do so, uh, is there anything, anything that you really want to, to leave the, the, the listeners with before I move on to something dramatically more depressing? <laughs> um, there is, well, before you go depressing, um, I'm going to say that there is hope for, um, wild places in Canada uh, so pay attention to your country and what's happening in your country. And um, we still have a lot of wild places in this country and uh, we can still protect them um, and keep them keep them wild. Great. Draw a line in the woods doesn't have the same ring to it. I feel like, I feel like you know what I'm saying. Right. I'll say that. Yes. Yeah. Just not here. Uh, <laughs> well, okay. Uh, so I'll pivot from there to... Uh, Part of the reason why it's so important to protect the places that we do have uh, some level of control over here in Canada uh, is because other places are going the exact opposite direction. Mm. Uh, most notably, uh, that Trump is move is basically moving to open nearly all offshore waters to offshore drilling. And so, if you liked pristine water uh, outside uh, on any of your coasts, uh, this is bad news. This is uh, he, this is again this is part of Trump's pathological, uh, I think is the right word, uh, attempts to destroy everything that Obama did. And, and so this is a, this is a, it lifts a ban on such, on these on types of drilling that Obama, Obama posed near the end of his term. This is one of the things Obama did sort of right near the end of his term as a way to, as, as a way to sort of, I won't say capitulate, but, uh, but sort of to do something on the environmental file, which was sort of one of his two big things after, whilst knowing that he sort of failed to get a cap and trade program passed. Um, and so this was the, this was part of his sort of pantheon of, uh, of attempts to make the, to make the America more environmentally friendly. Uh, unfortunately, all of these things are a lot easier to reverse, uh, than, than some of the other things he would have done. But the, 
basically it opens up uh, space off the off the coast of of California uh, as well as 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 Alaska and and just and just really almost everywhere like it was huge like it, the amount of places that Obama had actually protected that are now going to once again are now at risk to being you know unprotected once again and a lot of again if anyone remembers Deepwater Horizon was not that long ago um, <laughs> and they still have not uh, you know I feel like there's a what we'll end up doing at some point someone will, will write a very good book about the sort of already gaping scars that humanity has created across this planet uh, and and they'll include things like the Gulf Coast um, or or even you know and then even even something like you know Puerto Rico still 115 days after her uh, after the hurricane hit is half without power you know there's still like you know there's these places that that people are you know, it's not that there. It's not that no one can be there, but they're but they're being rapidly abandoned, uh, in part in part because they're they're a lot harder to do this. I think the word you were you were looking for is Netflix series, Stefan. It's 2018. Right. Oh, good right. point. <laughs> right. Sorry. No one's going to write a book. Netflix mini series. <laughs> yeah. About or Amazon scars. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. Amazon Prime. There we go. Uh, um, it, 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 does someone make it like making a murder, but in 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 for this? That's all we need. Uh, then people might care about things for you know making the, an oil spill. Oh, there we go. Um, it's or, writing itself. Exactly. Already. We're already done. You're welcome, everyone. We did it. Uh, but no. So this is so this is you know this is a this is a idea uh, that has been already proposed. Uh, it's it's again he's he's gone out and. Uh, he's already meeting with his secretary uh, Zinke, uh to to begin to do these sort of things. And the what's interesting actually about this is that a lot of the um, a lot of the governors are not so stoked about this, including Republican governors, uh, including something like uh, Governor Rick Scott, who is an incredibly bad person. Uh, <laughs> uh, he is, he's, he, he's done many things that are bad. Uh, he's the main reason why Florida is really just, if you want to talk about places that are waiting to become no-go zones, uh, the <laughs> next, the, the, Florida has a bevy of places that are just, have done nothing to protect themselves from, from sea level increase. Uh, and not to mention that most of it is built off porous rock, so the water will come up through the ground. Uh, like, if Florida is a is a is sort of sit, is a sitting duck a little bit climate wise, uh, in part because Governor Rick Scott has done absolutely nothing about it, and yet even he uh, has vowed on Thursday to protect his state's coast from <laughs> drilling, uh, and he's already complaining to the Interior Secretary Ryan Zicke about it. Oh, Rick! Uh, yeah, exactly. Um, and and he said in a statement in quotes, "My top priority is to ensure that Florida's natural resources are protected." I don't believe you, Rick, but I appreciate that you are at least you know. Uh, there's of you know, if the Republican governors are out, maybe we have some hope on fighting this thing. Uh, and he's not alone. Uh, you know, the governors of New Jersey, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, California, Oregon, and Washington have all opposed offshore drilling plans, uh, including um, offshore. Uh, let's be clear: offshore of the United States. Yes, they're all right. great. Th two, you know, three thumbs up to drilling in the yeah. Arctic. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, 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 it's also it's also offshore of Alaska. Uh, is, is part of this as well. This, oh, right, also, I mean, Alaska. That's not really. A, that's not really a state. Right. Right. Yeah. And they're not. They're not the ones opposing it. They're, I'm just. Saying, I'm. I'm, I'm, I'm. I'm only kidding to the extent that I'm saying, like, from the point of view of the Republicans in the South, mm. even with mm. a Republican governor in Alaska, right. like it's the same thing with uh, Hawaii and Puerto Rico and uh, like, oh yeah, okay, but fine. They don't really care. Right. Like, yeah. They're, 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 not, <laughs> they're, not, they're not part of the 48. Americans. Right. Yeah. The 48. The yeah. lower 48. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, real Americans only live in the actual South. Yeah. You know, that's right. New York is not real America either. Uh, but the 
the what's important here is well besides the fact that this is opening up massive things and part of the thing that's kind of so ridiculous about this and this is again we, we talk about this a lot in relation to the tar, to, to the tar sands uh, here in Canada which is that this is a doubling and tripling and quadrupling down on some on a on a resource that are, is fast becoming uh, out of vogue. Uh, you know, it's not it's, it's it's not in the death spiral that that coal is, mm-hmm. uh, but it's clearly the next on the hit list. Uh, you know, and to the extent that quite literally, you know, the like again, we mentioned this on the last week's show about California's uh, intention to 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 go. They're currently stating sounds as if they might end up being banning the sale of of, of fossil fuel cars uh, by 2040, hmm. which means if you start building an offshore rig now. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I, don't, I don't know how long it takes. I'm guessing it's at least a couple years. I hope so. If they can build an offshore rig in less than that, I'm I now want. I, I'm very <laughs> concerned. You know, if you can dig that far under, or not dig, if you can just like drill that far underwater uh, in less than a couple of years of, of engineering, then I'm deeply concerned about about how why. Uh, actually, then it just explains why Deepwater Horizon existed because you know they're cutting every corner, but. Well, Elon Musk mm-hmm. is in, you know, for the Hyperloop, is created a new company for drilling. So there you go. <laughs> it's just drill everything. There you go. That's the solution. The solution to, to drilling is more drilling. Um, <laughs> but but again, this is part of the this is part of the things that so as the the government plans on selling uh, some of these leases uh, to again to to whoever wants to buy them, and it will be interesting to see who does buy them because the other thing about this actually is that these kinds of projects are the most unpopular projects. That that these oil companies do, you know, Shell volunt—I was about to say voluntarily. Uh, Shell was incredibly pressured to reduce in, uh, and I, I believe it was Shell uh, to leave Arctic drilling uh, after a very long, intensive campaign against them for Arctic drilling, mm-hmm. and and they just and you know it was difficult anyways, and they were sort of like, all right, well, why are we going to try that hard to do this thing, uh, given how much bad press it is? And so I, I'll be interested to see. I'm sure there's a lot of places in which this won't. Uh, this the, the, where this will certainly just lead to more drilling, but I'm I'm interested to see whether or not uh, the the sort of fight by the uh, by the people sort of who don't see it and like I think combination of the fight from people who are activists who don't want to see this happen and the increasingly negative return on investment that might exist uh, from these drilling wells might limit the damage of this kind of thing, uh, but it certainly proves that the that Trump has no interest in. Um, in, in slowing down his complete destruction of the regulation state in, in the United States. Uh, you know, it, it shows that it's that just we, th- we thought the first year of how much he destroyed the EPA was was bad. Uh, this is right along line with all of that. Um, and and so, you know, it's it will we'll find out what happens next, I guess. Uh, and, you know, all of the all of the Democratic senators are saying things like, you know, we're going to we're pursuing all legislative tools is the, what the senator from Massachusetts is going to say. Like, and again, let's be real here. The Democratic senator from Massachusetts is not going to hold a lot of sway. Like that guy, that guy is the sa- in one of the safest Democratic seats, <laughs> you know, unless Scott Brown shows up again. Um, you know, this is a problem. But still. This is a this is the this is one of the fights that is happening, and and I think very important to to understand that what these are destroying is the types of thing that you Deirdre was looking at uh, during your time. Yeah, um, I it makes me think about uh, an incident that just happened um, about a month ago, about a month ago in BC. I have one minute. <laughs> um, the the tug and barge Jake Shearer was an American um, tug um, that was pulling 
pulling a lot of diesel and gas um, across the inside passage. And at one point, it lost control of the, it lost the barge. It almost hit an offshore island that we have been filming on for the past year. And it was probably the most, the most stressful event of the past like five years of my life. Um, and the thing is, we don't have the resources on this coast or on the American coast to deal with that much industry. Like there is nothing that we could have done. It was just pure luck that we um, that it didn't hit the shore. Um, but it was such a close call. It could have been the Canadian Exxon Valdez. Uh, Valdez. And that is all the time we have for him, I'm afraid. But thank you very much, uh, Deirdre, for joining us. Thank you, Stefan, as usual. And thank you to our, our guest, uh, Christine Nielsen, uh, with the documentary as well. That's all the time we have for today. But you can check out uh, some more information on the website. You can uh, find the link, Deirdre, for watching that film later. will be on there. It'll be up at 3 today. Yes. Uh, so you can watch that documentary. Thank you. Uh, and, of course, there will be uh, some more. There's uh, there's always more things going on at the Green Majority. So there, if you download the podcast version of today's show, there was a few extra announcements we'll, we'll be doing on there. As well, a good place to get answers to all of those questions is go to our website, greenmajority.ca. You can do that anytime. Uh, That is all the time we have for, though, as I said. So have a good green week. Thank you so much for listening. Take care.